0: I'm reading Colossians 3, verses 20 and 21. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, everybody. What makes life meaningful? It's a big question. Uh, It's a question that Pew Research Poll asked in November of 2021 to people in 17 different nations. There was a lot of variation amongst uh, some of the secondary answers, but one of the most interesting things in that poll was that among those 17 nations, 15 of them had the number one answer to this question, what makes life meaningful and significant? They said, family and children. Here's the poll right here. 15 of the 17, that was the number one answer. I think it's fairly safe to say that broadly speaking, family is considered to be one of the primary or most significant, most profound sources of meaning and significance in a person's life. Whether you are a member of a family or you have started a family, this is something that has the potential for great joy, great shalom, flourishing, peace. If you've ever held a newborn baby, you get a spark of that, a little glimpse of the joy that family can bring. It's supposed to be that way. And yet, and yet, it doesn't take much to imagine how damaging that source of significance can be, right? In the very healthiest families, the very best case scenario, there are still deeply embedded sin patterns that get passed from generation to generation. Like a parasite, sin has attached itself to the good gift, the significant place of meaning we call family. And now it distorts and it destroys Our ability to communicate with others is deeply impacted by the type of communication we experienced in our families growing up. The way that we view friendship, sexuality, finances, marriage, singleness, conflict resolution, generosity, all these things are deeply shaped for good and for bad by our families of origin, by our parents. This is the best case scenario. The best case scenario is that there are generational wounds that get handed down from one generation to the next, right? But many of you didn't grow up with the best case scenario. Many of you grew up in homes that experienced abuse, abandonment, neglect, addictions. Not everybody here experienced the best case scenario And when I think about this and I think about these generational patterns of sin and I think about being folks here who've experienced such terrible, terrible things in family and I compare it to that list where we see 15 of these 17 nations say that this is the number one source of significance and meaning. I wonder, how can it be that the well of meaning is also the well of damage? Is there hope that these patterns of being wounded and then wounding others can change? Are we doomed to just keep repeating the same cycle of pain generation after generation? Is there hope for something new, for something different? Can we somehow capture a window of that flourishing, that significance, that meaning that we so deeply desire in family and how? My hope here this morning is that we would walk away, not with frustration and hopelessness, but with hope and encouragement, knowing that the resurrection of Jesus Christ gives an entirely new paradigm for family. Let's pray and then jump into the text. Lord Jesus, uh, you're present here with us. You're present here with every individual who is single or married, who has kids or does not have kids. You're present here with folks who have kids who are long out of their home, and you want to speak a word through, your, uh, through this text here this morning. And so we invite you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would speak through this text, that you would speak through me, that we would be able to hear your voice clearly as we read Colossians. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, well, welcome to Redemption Church. My name is Keith. I'm one of the pastors here, and we've been going through a series in uh, the letter of Colossians. We are now uh, deep into chapter 3. We're almost to the end of chapter 3. Also, if it feels a little warm in here, and you notice this over here, it's because our AC went out this morning. So welcome to Safford School. (laughs) That's part of the charm of the school, right? I've been told that it's been a lot worse in here before. So if you've endured worse, thank you. Um, we're in chapter three. If you don't have a Bible, one of our ushers will come down here and bring a Bible to you. Just go ahead and raise your hand um, and one of our, our ushers will bring a Bible for you. If you don't own a copy of God's Word, go ahead and hang on to that. That is our gift to you. También um, tenemos en español. Si necesita una copia de la Biblia en español, por favor, levanta la mano y diga español. Y alguien va a dar una copia de la Biblia a usted. Si no tiene... Uh, este es nuestro regalo a usted. Uh, we are in chapter three, as I mentioned, and a couple things that I want to cover for context and recap in case you haven't been here. So, one, this is a letter. It was written by a guy named Paul. Uh, he wrote this from prison. He was in chains when he wrote this. He was proclaiming the gospel and he was arrested for this and put in jail. He wrote this letter to a church he had never visited before, a church he did not plant, a church in a place called Colosse. Um, And so he handed this letter off to a messenger, and the messenger would have read this, and they would have read it in its entirety. They would not have chopped it up into little sections like we've done. There was no such thing as chapter markers and verse markers in that day. They wrote it and read it as one piece of literature, one letter. So everybody who was in that church, all these different family households, they would have been gathered together in one place. They would have heard this read all at the same time, all in one reading, okay? And the main theme of this letter that Paul uncovers here is that Jesus Christ is supreme in every aspect of life. We've subtitled this sermon series, The Supremacy of Christ in All of Life. And so he goes through chapter one and two, and he talks about how Jesus is supreme over different ideologies and philosophies of man and how he has conquered these things. He is the ruler over everything in all of life. Then he pivots in chapter three, and he starts to talk about this thing, the new creation. Somehow, at the end of time, when Jesus comes back, he's going he's to bring uh, down the new creation. Heaven is going to come to earth. He's going to make all things new. But somehow, Paul says, that little window of heaven, that little window of the new kingdom, the new creation, is breaking into now. He calls it the old self and the new self. And he says, put off the old self and put on the new self. He says, live as though the identity that you have is in the new creation, not in the old creation, right? And to give an example, to kind of give some legs to what he means by this, he then turns his attention to the most basic social unit, a Roman household, okay? So in the first part of the Roman household code, you could say, he talks to uh, marriages, husbands and wives, then he talks to children and parents, and then lastly, he talks to slaves and masters. Easy texts, right? Easy text for us. Uh, so last week we looked at husbands and wives, this week we're looking at children and parents, and then next week we'll look at slaves and masters. Um, so I think the first thing that we need to ask ourselves when we jump into this text then is what is what does a Roman household look like? What's the context here of who Paul is talking to? Who's his audience? So, a Roman household was controlled and ruled by the father. He was called in Latin the pater familias, the, the family father. Uh, and he was in charge of every individual in his home. He had the right of life and death over every individual in his home. The emperor, the Roman emperor, called himself the pater familias of the empire. So you could think of the father, the pater familias of the home, as the emperor of the home. He was the boss. He was in charge, Right? And also the Greeks and the Romans uh, had a social hierarchy that was really based on this thing called the logos. The logos is the capacity for rational thought, for reason, for logic. And the Romans believed that only free adult male citizens held the full logos. They were the only ones who had the ability to rationally think, to logically think through things, and therefore they're the only ones who are allowed to hold positions in government. They are the only ones who are allowed to have certain status in society. Uh, one down on the notch, the Romans believed that uh, women possessed maybe partial logos. Partial. So they're kind of like partial human beings in a sense. They didn't have the same capacity, and therefore they could not hold government positions or other positions of status. And at the very bottom rung of the social ladder, and if you're mad, this is the Romans. This isn't me. Okay, this is the Romans saying this. I don't like this either. This is wrong. This is why we're going through this text. Um, At the very bottom of the rung were slaves and children who the Romans believed held no logos, no logic no rational capacity at all. They were more like animals than people. This is the way that O.M. Baki says it in his book, When Children Became People. Plato frequently groups children together with other marginal actors in classical society, women, slaves, and animals. Aristotle does the same, emphasizing that animals have the same relationship to human beings as children do to adults. Animals are to... Human beings, as children are to adults. You catch that? In the same way that stupid and foolish men are inferior to good and wise men, one consequence of such ideas is that the opinions of children were seen as of no more consequence than those of animals. Children in the structure of the Roman household were seen to possess no logic, no reason. Their opinions did not matter. They were more like animals than human beings. Also, they were more like tools. They were tools for their parents' honor, for their parents' legacy being carried on, but also they didn't have 401ks. They didn't have IRAs, right? There was no pension plan for these Roman citizens. And so they used their children in such a way for financial security in the future, right? This isn't entirely unfamiliar. We kind of have a generational expectation in in most places that children would somewhat take care of their parents, but all their hopes and dreams were on their children financially providing for them once they were in old age. And so children were really more like tools than they were human beings. Cicero, this is also from Owen Baki in his book, Cicero made the well-known observation that it's difficult to find any reason at all to praise a child for his inherent qualities. It deserves praise only on account of the potential it has to become something in the future. That is an adult human being with the quality characteristic, uh, qualities characteristic of adulthood. This is Cicero, this is what he said a Roman philosopher. The thing itself cannot be praised, only its potential. The thing cannot be praised. But the reality was children were also expensive. And so the luxury of investing financially into your children really was with the upper classes. The lower classes did not necessarily have the financial resources to invest in many children in order to have a a secure future financially. And so in the first century, many chose to practice expositio, Expositio is the practice of exposing newborns to the elements and allowing them to die. Children were not considered to have the same logos that adult female citizens held and therefore they were not considered to be really full people. Plutarch, another philosopher, believed that infants, newborn babies, who still had their umbilical cord attached were more like plants than human beings. Once a child made it through the harrowing journey of infancy, and they were actually a part of the family, they could often be given over to become slaves for financial reasons, bond servants. Many were abused, um, both sexually and physically abused. And in fact, many practiced uh, the the practice of pederasty, which is uh, giving children over to have sexual relationships with adult men, and they consider that to be normal and good in the first century in Rome. And we gasp at all this in horror now. I know I did, as I was reading through this book. What's really considered to be socially evil today, or good today, has been influenced not by the Romans, but it's been influenced by millennia of Christian thought. A revolution started in the first century and how to treat children well, and I want to argue that it started right here in Colossians chapter 3. So we look at this with critical distance historically, but it's because of 2,000 years of Christian salting of culture that we can look at it this way and say, wow, the Romans were brutish when it came to children, okay? The revolution starts in chapter 3 of Colossians. One more disclaimer before we jump into the text. Some of you Uh, Some of you here are wondering if this applies to you at all, the text. Maybe you don't have children. Maybe you have adult children that have grown. uh, Maybe you're single. And I want to say, stick with me here. Stick with me. Pay attention. If every family in our church showed up on any given Sunday morning, we'd have about 90 kids under the age of 10 here. (laughs) That's like the size of this auditorium down here, uh, folks who are down here. 90 kids under the age of 10. And so I want you to think through it in this lens. We need you. I need you as a father. I need your help. We need you. Uh, we do this in the context of community. And so I want you to think, what does it look like for you to support and love and encourage individuals in our church who are a part of families, uh, children in our church, parents in our church, okay? So think through it through that lens. All right. The revolution starts in chapter 3, verse 20. And I wanna argue that there are five radical paradigm shifts from the old paradigm of Rome to the new paradigm of the resurrection, okay? Five radical paradigm shifts. Radical paradigm shift number one, children are not tools. Children are not tools, they are members of Christ's households. We're gonna look at verse 20 here. Colossians 3 verse 20, it says this, children, I'm just gonna stop there, children. Now here's the interesting thing, remember, Children don't possess the logos, right? They have no rational capacity. They're not considered to be human beings as much as they're considered to be animals, right? Well, they're reading this text out, and when Paul is addressing the children, he is giving them something that no one in Colossae has given them. He's given them something that no one in the Roman culture has ever given them. He's giving them dignity. He's speaking to them. He's assuming they can understand instruction, they can re- receive instruction. He's treating them as though they were human beings made in the image of God. He addresses the children, and he lets them know that these children are members of the household in their own right. And not just this household, but the household of Jesus, Jesus' household. Don't think that we're immune to this uh, kind of old paradigm today, though. How often do children carry the weight of their parents' unfulfilled hopes and dreams? Has anyone ever been to a Little League baseball game? (laughs) (laughs) Marcus says he's putting his feet up on the couch. I'm like digging through your closet right now, right? Um, We put our unfulfilled hopes and dreams and expectations on our children athletically. Maybe you wish that you were a better athlete, and so you put that into them. What about academically? You didn't get into this school, you didn't get into that school, and so you press and you push and you push, and they become an extension, not of God's image, but of your own image. They become a tool for you fulfilling desires that you had unfulfilled. So don't think you're immune, the paradigm of the old world still is alive today, but that is not the paradigm that we ought to live in. That is not the paradigm of the resurrection. The paradigm has shifted. Children are no longer tools. They're members of Christ's household. That's number one. Radical paradigm shift number two. Love precedes obedience, not the other way around. Let me say that again. Love precedes obedience, not the other way around. Let's keep going in Colossians 3.20. It says this, children, obey your parents in everything. And all the parents cheer. <laughs> There's not a lot of kids in here today, huh? But, hmm, suspect. Um, remember the old paradigm. Remember the old paradigm. Children were not treated well in the household. Treated, they were treated often as though they were servants for their fathers, Um, They were treated not with love and dignity and respect, but they were treated and expected um, to obey in everything already. So why does Paul even have to say this? Why does he even have to say obey in everything? Also, shouldn't we throw this out? Isn't this the era of grace? We're not in the era of law anymore, right? So I think the question we need to ask is, what's the relationship between obedience and love? They go together. They're, They're kind of like a bicycle, right? Like you need one pedal. One pedal's obedience and one pedal's love. You need them both to move forward because a relationship that you say, I love you, I love you, I love you, but then you never ever listen to that person, you never ever obey that person, do you really love them? Do you really respect them? Do you really trust them? Are you really honoring them? And then on the flip side, if a relationship is 100% obedience and no love, that's an employee. That's not a family member, that's an employee. This is not new. Obey so that I will love you is what you guys do every day in your jobs, right? Every day you go to work, your employer loves you more if you obey them, if you fill out whatever reports you're supposed to fill out, if you come in early, if you stay late. If you obey, then they will love you. That's not a relationship. That's an employer and an employee, right? So the new paradigm is that love has to precede obedience. It is the foundation for obedience. Now, remember, this church would have had some of the writings um, of the Gospels. They would have heard some of the teachings of Jesus, and so they would have had both of these things. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And then Jesus also said, if you obey my commandments, you will abide in my love. They go together, but love is the foundation from which obedience comes out. So, it's two sides of the same coin, um, and to obey everything willingly and joyfully, we need a sense of security. We need to know that the relationship is going to be unchanged no matter what. My, uh, my pastor at Redemption Tempe, we were there for seven years, he used to tell a story about how he would interact with his kids, and he'd say, um, do I love you because you're smart? No. Do I love you because you're handsome? Do I love you because you're athletic, because you're kind, because you obey me? Do I love you for any of those reasons? No, I love you because I love you. Love itself is the reason. And out of that, obedience can flow freely. This is the same in our relationship with Christ. And this is how children ought to be treated. Love unconditionally will produce obedience. Do my kids still disobey? Yeah, they do. (laughs) But I like to think that they're never afraid that they're gonna lose relationship with their dad. They're never afraid of that because they are loved unconditionally. Love precedes obedience. It's not the other way around. Radical paradigm shift. Number three, father isn't Lord, Jesus is Lord. Father isn't Lord, Jesus is Lord. So let's keep looking at verse three, or sorry, verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Paul is giving children a deeper and more significant motivation for honoring their parents. It's good to honor your parents, to obey your parents, because you want to honor them, because you want to please them. That's good. But he's giving something deeper. He's saying uh, that there is a different Lord of your house, And this should have read like a record scratch when they read it, right? Because remember, the father is the Lord of the home. The father is the emperor of the home. He is the potter familius. He's in charge. What he says goes, right? But Paul says, this pleases the Lord. He's not talking about the father of the home. He's talking about Jesus when he says the Lord. The master of the house is not the father anymore. It is Jesus Christ himself. He is the master of the home. This is a literal reshaping and reforming of this institution of the home. Now they all sit under one Lord. Father and children sit under the same Lord. And children, as people in their own right, full image bearers of God in their own right, they can now please the Lord Jesus in what they do. So hear me, kids, if you are here, children, Jesus is with you. Jesus is pleased when you obey. He is honored when you listen and when you follow through. He's your king and he's your parents' king. You all will report to him someday. And when he sees you choosing to listen and to obey, he's gonna smile and he's gonna say, well done, well done. Your parents are not the only ones watching, kids. Jesus himself is watching you, and he's pleased. Father isn't Lord, Jesus is. Radical paradigm shift number four forgive, don't fight. Let's continue in verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children. So here's the instruction for fathers. And it's interesting, you know, again, they're the masters of the home. They probably aren't used to getting instructions. They're probably not used to getting commands from somebody, especially somebody they've never met who's in jail hundreds of miles away, right? But they get an instruction. They get a command. And the command is do not provoke your children. Do not stir them up to anger. And I do think that this applies to anyone who's a parent, anyone who deals with children, If you're an elementary school teacher, this applies to you too. But I think Paul's speaking especially to the dads. I think he's speaking especially to the people who hold a position of authority and power in their home. The old ways of the Roman Empire are gone now. Do not provoke your children, right? Abuse, that's gone. That cannot be a part of Christian home anymore. It's banished. Amen? Abandonment. That's banished from a Christian home. That is not a part of the resurrection paradigm. It does not belong. But I think Paul is raising the bar pretty high here because do not provoke could mean so many things, right? Bless you. Provoking could be ignoring. Sometimes I sit and I'm looking, scrolling through things on my phone and my kids will walk up to me and they'll do this really annoying thing where they put their hand over the phone or they'll smack it out of my (laughs) hands. Daddy, look at me. Pay attention to me. Daddy, I want to show you something. Daddy, listen. Provoking could be ignoring because what am I doing by saying I don't care about what you have to say? I'm back in the old paradigm. Your opinion doesn't matter. You're like an animal to me. Provoking could be ignoring. Provoking could also be teasing your kids and I am, I am preaching to myself here, folks. I love to, to tease and razz my kids, and, and it does drive them crazy. You know who teases people? You know who has power and teases someone who doesn't have power? You know who is bigger and teases someone who's smaller? Bullies do that. Bullies tease people. This is excluded from the new paradigm of being a parent. The resurrection paradigm has no place for bullying. No. Do not provoke your children. Provoking could also be having a rule for every little thing in your home. Everything could have a rule, right? Being flexib- or inflexible and rigid and changing the rules constantly. You know, sometimes my kids do something that's so annoying. I'm like, you can't do, there's a rule. You can't do that annoying thing you got to stop that immediately, right? That sound, there's a rule against that sound in our home. You can't make that, okay? But you have to ask yourself, and I need to ask myself this, does this rule help them to obey and to trust the master of the home? Remember, who's the master of the home? Jesus, right? Does it help them to love and obey the master of the home, or does it help me to stop being annoyed? See, having too many rules can provoke your children to anger. And provoking doesn't produce good stuff. (laughs) Provoking usually yields the fruit of strife. Have you experienced this? Provoking leads to fighting. It leads to arguing. It leads to yelling. It does not yield peace in your home. It yields strife. If children are members of God's household if they're human beings in their own right, if they're image bearers of God, we as parents need to be willing to treat them that way. Amen? And that means we need to ask for forgiveness. That's tough. That's tough to ask your kids for forgiveness. But when it's needed, you need to ask for forgiveness. Remember, Paul just said this in verse 13 of Colossians. This is just seven verses back. Bearing with one another, he's talking to all Christians in the home, including children, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. In our home, we have a rule, and it is a very humbling rule. I didn't make the rule up, my wife did, but it's a good rule. Whenever we apologize, the apology must include the words, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? And I've had to ask my seven-year-old for forgiveness. I've had to ask my five-year-old and my three-year-old for forgiveness. But that builds intimacy and builds relationship. And the fruit of forgiveness is love. The fruit of fighting is strife. So there's a new paradigm. It's not fighting, it's not provoking, it's forgiveness. Kids, your parents make mistakes. They are not perfect people. You need to forgive them when they ask for forgiveness. Parents, you know your kids make mistakes. You need to not harp on those mistakes over and over again. And you need to be willing to forgive them when they ask for forgiveness. This is the new paradigm of the resurrection, the new way. Last one, radical paradigm shift number five, build, don't break. Continuing in verse 21, fathers do not provoke your children Lest they become discouraged. Lest they become discouraged. The words become discouraged could literally be translated lose heart. Provoking your children, whether it's by the extremes of abuse and abandonment, or by the more common things of controlling and ignoring, it can cause them to lose heart, it can cause them to give up hope. You can crush a child's spirit. The old paradigm of the Roman home, that was probably a desirable outcome, right? If you crush someone's spirit, they obey better. If you think they're an animal, then you treat them like an animal and they obey like an animal, you break them in. But this is not the old paradigm, this is the new paradigm. And we know that today, fathers still have a massive impact on their homes, right? We often pass the wounds that we've received at the hands of our fathers, we pass it on to the next generation. If you were belittled by your dad, you might find yourself belittling your children. If you were ignored by your father, you might find yourself ignoring your children. If you, your dad had a hard time being reliable and following through on things, I'm guessing you have a hard time being reliable and following through on things with your kids. The fact is that hurt people hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. And it's a lot worse when a father is out of the picture the wound of absence is probably the biggest wound of all. It can break a child. When a biological step or adoptive father is not present, research has shown that the child is at greater risk of adverse outcomes, I'll just list a few here. Four times greater risk of poverty, twice as likely, uh, twice uh, the risk of infant mortality, more likely to go to prison and commit crime, seven times more likely to become pregnant as a teen, twice as likely to suffer obesity um, and abuse of drugs and alcohol, twice as likely to drop out of school. The old paradigm says abandonment. Um, it says cut and run when things are tough, right? That's the old paradigm. And it can cause a child to lose heart, to become disheartened and discouraged. But Paul has given a new paradigm. There is a new life that comes with the resurrection, new hope. Fathers ought to encourage their children, not break them. Build them up. Remember, Paul said this in verse 16: let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The new creation paradigm, the resurrection paradigm, means that instead of trying to dominate and discourage, you teach with patience. The new creation paradigm means that you admonish gently. The new creation paradigm means that you sing songs together. The new creation paradigm means you express gratitude to and for one another. The new creation paradigm assumes that you're there for your kids. Physically is a great start, being present, but emotionally there, spiritually there for your kids the new creation paradigm, the resurrection paradigm is unfolding as we speak in the midst of the church. And now we're getting to see the transformation, the revolution begin in the most basic of institutions, the home. Build up your kids. Don't break them down. You all, folks, are called to be a part of that new creation paradigm, and you might be asking yourself, how? How do we do this? I've tried in my house, and you just don't know my kids. I don't. I don't. And maybe you feel like you're being beaten down. Maybe you've felt beaten down as a parent before. You're trying, and you're trying, and you know that you're responsible for some of the strife in your home, but you don't know how to move forward You wanna see those generational sin patterns break, but you see them coming out in your words and in your actions still. How do you participate in this new resurrection paradigm? Well, Paul says in Romans eight, verse 11, that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who raised Jesus Christ from the dead is alive in you. He's alive in you. The new creation, the resurrection paradigm is alive in you now and at work in you now. If you've experienced conviction, that's the Holy Spirit working in you. If you've experienced growth and patience and gentleness, that's the Holy Spirit at work in you. He is alive and he is bringing out the resurrection paradigm in your body and in your words and in your thoughts and in your actions. He's transforming you. But not only you as an individual, because when Paul says these words in Romans 8, 11, it is you, plural, it's y'all, right? The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in y'all. He's saying, you can't do this alone. The resurrection spirit is alive here in this community, in this place, collectively, corporately, together. The spirit is alive and at work. You can't do it alone. I can't do it alone. We can't do this alone. We need each other because we experience the new creation paradigm in the context of community. Don't miss it. Single folks, we need you. Families need you. People who don't have kids, we need you. Folks who have kids that are grown and out of the home, we need you. Families need you. Kids need you. The resurrection paradigm comes alive, and it is at work in the context of God's people here in this place. The spirit of Jesus is alive and he is transforming families so that they might be a tiny little glimpse of shalom, a tiny little glimpse of that significance that so many people wanna find in family. The old paradigm does not have a place here in this building, in this people any longer. Let's live in light of the resurrection paradigm, the new paradigm. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would descend on this people. We pray that you would bring hope and encouragement to places that have felt desperation. God, the homes that are filled with strife and discouragement and fighting, the parents who feel tired and lonely, the single parents who are struggling, God, we pray that you would bring them alive by the power of your Spirit at work in them as individuals but we also pray that you would bring us alive as a church to come around them, to support them, to help them to experience a glimpse, a window of the resurrection life in their home. God, we pray for shalom, for peace, for flourishing, for wholeness in these homes so that we might embody in our homes and in our community the new paradigm the new paradigm of the resurrection and the life. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.